Hello, and welcome to the Pet Wellness Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Bonder, a veterinarian with a passion for all things pet, experienced in holistic medicine, pet training, and you guessed it, pet wellness. This is a show where we not only talk about pet problems, we give solutions and suggestions for optimizing your pet's health. Each week, you'll hear thought-provoking advice and interviews, as well as actionable tips you can implement in your daily life. And now, here's your host. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike, and welcome to another edition of the Pet Wellness Podcast. I learn something new almost every single day as a practicing small animal veterinarian, and I want to pass those lessons on to you, my listeners. The more we learn about our beloved pets, the better pet wellness advocate we can be for our companions. Tailspin is a collection of stories from my clinic that had a profound impact on me and helped shape my philosophies as a veterinarian and as a pet wellness advocate. And this episode is called Chip's Journey to Pain-Free. Chip was a nine-year-old male Springer Spaniel. I wanted to share this extraordinary story with you for a number of reasons. First, I want to give you a backstage pass into some of the things that we commonly see as veterinarians that can be very stressful for both our clients and us. But don't worry, I'll be sharing some very happy stories as well. And in fact, although today's story starts off a bit sad, spoiler alert, it's going to end with a happy ending. Second, this story taught me a very valuable lesson which is why I remember most of the salient details, even though it happened many years ago. I can only hope that it will serve as a lesson for you as a pet owner. And finally, I'm really hoping to encourage you by telling you this story, why I want pet owners like you to take more responsibility for your pet's health and well-being. In other words, I want you to thrive on being a pet wellness advocate. So as I already mentioned, Chip was a senior Springer Spaniel. He had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes a few years earlier. And type 1 diabetes, as in humans, is a genetic disease that you're sort of born with, but you may not acquire till later in life, versus type 2 diabetes, which is usually an acquired disease in people as well as cats, but interestingly enough, not in dogs. So Chip was very well controlled on a special diet and insulin that his owners had to give injectably twice a day. As an interesting aside, I've diagnosed many dogs and cats with diabetes in my career, and some of them are insulin dependent, which means the owners have to give injections twice a day. And I cannot remember one time where an owner has said, oh, that's great. And in fact, I've had owners literally refuse to do it. And then they realize that their pet is not going to survive without insulin, and then they agree to try. And what's funny is, on the recheck visit, they always come back to me and say, wow, that is a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. So although Chip was fairly well controlled, he had developed mature cataracts, which is a very common feature in both diabetic dogs and people. And unfortunately, Chip started to go blind from his cataracts about nine months after his diagnosis. And the owners had decided not to do the surgery to remove his cataracts, which may have partially restored some of his original sight. And there were a number of reasons that we won't go into now that influenced that decision. But one of them was that Chip was able to get around quite well 
despite his blindness. Blind dogs learn to adapt very well to their lack of sight, thanks in part to their very heightened senses of sound and smell. The only true limitation is keeping them on one floor, as stairs can be a little bit dangerous at times. Regardless, owning a diabetic dog that is blind is a huge commitment, and I get that. And Chip's pet parents were wonderful people. And of course, Chip was the ideal patient. Springer Spaniels actually are a very interesting breed. My experience with them has always been sort of hot or cold. Chip, thankfully, was the perfect example of a well-behaved Springer Spaniel. He was very food-motivated, and he knew me as the treat man. So we had a special relationship. Springer Spaniels typically have a docked tail, so it's only about two or three inches long. And sometimes when they're excited or happy, it's hard to see their tail wagging. With Chip, it didn't matter because when he saw me, or after he was blind, when he heard me, his whole back end would wag with excitement. Springer Spaniels, however, can also have a very dark side. There's a specific syndrome called Springer Rage that I've unfortunately witnessed at least once or twice in my career. These dogs will literally snap in seconds and are very scary to work with. Thankfully, Chip never had that issue. So one day, Chip presented to the clinic with a two-day history of lethargy and poor appetite. By the morning of his appointment, I remember the owner telling me that she didn't give him his insulin because he ate nothing. And that was something that I taught her when Chip was first diagnosed. Insulin is designed to give after a meal, when the blood sugar rises, to bring it down to normal levels. If an animal doesn't eat and you give them insulin, there's the danger of dropping their blood sugar down to very low and dangerous levels. I always warn owners that high blood sugar will never kill any animal, but a low blood sugar certainly can. And I've actually dealt with pets in a coma from low blood sugar levels, which is a topic for another podcast or blog. As soon as I saw Chip, my heart sank, because I could tell right away that he was in pain, and certainly not the Chip I remembered. His head was low, he was walking really slowly, and his body was stiff yet still, rather than wiggling with excitement. I remember getting down low to his level and calling out his name softly. I got a little wag, and he approached me for a soft touch, but it was apparent that he was in trouble. The first thing I noticed was his eyes. They just weren't right, and within seconds, I knew what I was dealing with, and my heart sank even more. Chip's eyes had three hallmark signs of a very dangerous disease. His eyes were bulging, which is what we like to call exophthalmos. The sclera of the eye, which is the white part of the eye, had massive bulging blood vessels. And finally, Chip's pupils were completely dilated. I made the dreaded diagnosis of glaucoma in my head before I ever did the test to confirm it. I told the owner that I was worried that Chip had glaucoma in both eyes, which is an excruciating disease. And the first thing that I needed to do was to address Chip's pain. She agreed. So I took Chip to the back and immediately put some anesthetic drops in his eyes to provide some local relief. I asked my nurse to put in an intravenous catheter so that I could administer a narcotic to augment the pain control for Chip. In the meantime, I went back into the room to discuss with the owner what I felt was going on with Chip. I told her that one of the tests that I needed to do 
was to check Chip's intraocular pressure, which is the pressure inside his eyes, in order to definitively diagnose him with glaucoma, which I was 90 plus percent sure that he had based on the signs that I could see in Chip's eyes. The problem with cataracts, especially in diabetics, is that they can induce or cause inflammation. And that inflammation can affect a very important part of the eye called the uvea. The uvea essentially is the color part of the eye. You know, whether it's blue or green or brown, that's the uvea. And the uvea has a lot of important structures in it. So if the uvea gets inflamed, it's called uveitis. And I'm going to share with you a little bit about how the eye works so that you can understand why uveitis in these diabetic animals can be so dangerous. Inside our eyes, there's fluid called the aqueous humor, which has always puzzled me because there's nothing funny about aqueous humor. Anyway, fluid goes back and forth between the front of the eye and the back of the eye, providing nutrients and oxygen to the different structures of the eye. Excess fluid is constantly being drained from the eye through an area called the drainage angle. Well, when an animal gets uveitis, it can block this angle sometimes, leading to a buildup of fluid in the eye. I'll ask you to close your eye for a second and just gently touch your eyeball. And you realize that yes, it's a bit hard, but it actually has a bit of give to it. And that's because fluid is constantly coming in, but at the same time going out. So what happens if the fluid can no longer go out? When that happens, the pressure in the eye starts to build up, and that pressure is called the intraocular pressure. Intra for within, and ocular for eye. You can measure intraocular pressure with a special device called a tonometer. And back in the old days, probably in the first 15 years or so that I was practicing, we used to use what's called a Schiotz tonometer. S-C-H-I-O-T-Z. I would encourage you all to check that out on Google. Just type Schiotz tonometer and look and see what this thing looks like. It's a big metal object. kind of looks like a protractor. And that's the device that we used to use to measure intraocular pressure back in the old days. Essentially, you'd have to point the dog's head straight to the sky and put this large metal object onto their eyeball and use that to measure intraocular pressure. It was a very crude and often unreliable process, but that's what we had back then. Thankfully, by the time I saw Chip, I had what's called a tonopen, T-O-N-O pen. And you can look that one up. That looks a lot nicer and is a lot easier to deal with. First of all, you didn't have to tilt the dog's head upward. You could do it in the dog's normal head position. And secondly, the spot that touched their eye was a lot smaller and therefore a lot less traumatic to the eye. So after I laid out my plan for Chip with the owner, I went to the back and by then Chip had been placed on an intravenous catheter and was hooked up to fluids. I gave Chip a dose of a very strong narcotic to help alleviate his pain. And then we went with the tonopen and measured his pressures. I was absolutely shocked. Normal intraocular pressure for a dog is somewhere between 10 and 25. Chips was greater than 80 on both sides. Talk about the headache from hell. This poor dog had been walking around for a couple of days with a pressure three to four times normal in both of his eyes. We were in trouble and I knew it. So I went back into the room with the owner and explained to her what I found. We had essentially diagnosed Chip with glaucoma, secondary to his uveitis.
And unfortunately, we'd hit a crossroads because there were really only two options at this point. There was no way for me to get the pressure down in his eyes. So we either had to do one of two things. We either had to take both of his eyes out or we had to humanely put him to sleep. And by the way, if you thought that being a veterinarian was a wonderful job, it is. But at these moments is when it really sucks having to tell an owner that their poor dog might be leaving them. Her initial first choice, finding out that she was going to have both of her dog's eyes removed, was obviously to put her dog to sleep. And to be honest, I was prepared to do that given the gravity of this situation, even though it would really bother me to end Chip's life. But I sat down with her and said, let's just think about what this means for Chip. Think about Chip three days ago. Tell me about it. And she did. She explained how he was in a great mood, was eating well, was playing with his toys, and was the pure joy of life. So I said to her, well, the only thing that's changed since that day is this disease, which we can get rid of if we remove his eyes. And then I asked her a really important question, and that is, I know it sounds really gross to you about removing his eyes, but how do you think Chip feels about the fact that he won't have eyeballs anymore? Do you really think that he's going to be bothered about it? And she said, no, thankfully. And I finally said to her, if I can get Chip back to where he was three days ago, looking a little different, would you be willing to give that a try? And she said, yes, honestly, I would. So I told her that I could get Chip back to that place if she would let me do the surgery. And I told her that afterwards, if she wasn't happy with the way Chip responded to the surgery and she decided to have him euthanized, then I would do it at my own cost. Because I didn't want her to think that I was doing this surgery with any intent other than to make Chip well. She agreed, and that day was the very first day that I'd ever removed two eyeballs in one day. I'd done many single ones, but never both. The surgery went extremely well. Chip did great. He recovered well. We had him on a constant rate infusion of narcotics, so he was pain-free, and he was sleeping soundly. I was very happy with how things went. And to be honest with you, it looked like he was laying there with his eyes closed. There's really nothing to notice. So Chip stayed overnight, and I remember that morning driving to work. There was a little part of me that was really excited and hoping that Chip was going to do as well as I thought he was going to do. And then there was a little part of me that was frightened that he may have gotten the cone off that we put on him and scratched at the incision site. And I had these horrible visions of what I might see when I got there. Anyway, I was the first into the clinic. I walked to the back and I said, Chippy, which is what I call Chip. And all of a sudden I heard a thump, 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 thump. And I knew what that thump was. That was Chip's butt hitting the sidewall of the cage. And the closer I got, the louder the thumps got. Until I finally saw him. And it was a moment of pure glory. Chip had transformed into the dog I always remembered. And the owner was absolutely thrilled. If you want to talk about the highs of being a veterinarian, it's reuniting owners with a healthy dog after being as sick as Chip was. That is a moment I'll never forget. To add a perfect end to the story, 
Chip lived another two years, two glorious years of a normal life as a blind diabetic dog. And I want to cap it off by reading an excerpt from an article that actually was published on April 2nd of this year, literally two or three weeks ago. And it was an article entitled, Animal Welfare Considerations and Ethical Dilemmas Inherent in the Euthanasia of Blind Canine Patients. How apropos. And in the abstract, it says, the diagnosis of incipient or already established blindness in dogs can sometimes lead to an inappropriate request for euthanasia, which almost happened with Chip. But if you go to the end, to the conclusion, here's what it says. In conclusion, owner education with appropriate information and support is required to help him or her better manage his or her animal's condition because many dogs can live a fulfilled and happy life without their sight. And that is so true when it comes to Chip. So I want to end this episode with the lessons that can be taken away from this amazing story. Lesson number one. Signs of pain can be very elusive when it comes to dogs and cats. They're extremely stoic. And so don't expect them to cry or whine all the time because they won't. Chip didn't. The only thing that Chip presented with was just being a little lethargic and not eating. If you see any of those signs in your dog or cat, that being lethargy or poor appetite, that is the reason to go and seek veterinary care. Number two, if you ever see your pet with dilated pupils or a very red eye, don't ignore those signs. There's something wrong. Take them to see your veterinarian. Number three, if you happen to own a diabetic pet, realize that they're prone to cataracts and therefore they're prone to glaucoma, which is what Chip had. So always look again at the white part of their eye, the sclera, and their pupils. And I would check those on a daily basis. Number four, try not to do what I speak about in my ebook that you can download for free at ebook.petwellnessadvocate.com. Try not to anthropomorphize which is giving human characteristics to dogs. I'm sure that when I said the word removing eyeballs, you all thought, oh, that's so gross. I, I can't believe you would do that. That's crazy. But you know what? That's you thinking for you. Pets don't think that way. I don't know of any dog who's had one eyeball that walks around feeling sorry for themselves. Three-legged dogs play just as hard as four-legged dogs. The one thing I've learned from pets that I will always, always cherish, and I hope you gain from this story, is that pets don't judge other pets based on how they look, the color of their fur, or anything other than themselves. And that is something that we need to learn as human beings. And finally, I was being an advocate for Chip. I was able to convince her that ending Chip's life on that day was not the right answer. And thankfully, she listened to me, and she agreed with me once she saw how great Chip did after his surgery. Please, don't just let anybody make a decision for your pet. You need to be an advocate for your pet. Because remember, our pets deserve our best. Thanks so much for listening. If you're excited to hear more about how you can become a pet wellness advocate, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thanks for spending time with us today.